Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are uh, thankful for how much You love us, and we're thankful for the love of our Savior who gave Himself for us. And we pray that that would be at the front of our minds always, that we would be reflecting on His grace to us and, and the mercy that You show to us through His death. And uh, we pray that You would <clears throat> never uh, allow us to think that we brought anything to the table when it came to our salvation, but, but recognize that it is only because of what Jesus Christ did that we can have a right standing before You. The very least that we can do in response to that is to give our lives as a sacrifice. We pray that You'd give us understanding now as we think through uh, the history, more recent history of how the Baptists started and, and how the world mission movement started as well. And we, um, we look forward to giving the praise to You because of what we will learn today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. You know what? I need one more plug here. One second. <clears throat> Marine? Oh, no, I'm not. I wasn't. That's my brother. I, actually, that's my brother's uniform. He let me put it on. And, what were you wearing that for? Uh, we were just seeing if we could fit into it because he's, he's gained a lot of... No, he, he actually gained a lot of weight and wasn't able to fit into it anymore, so... No. That's good. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Today we're going to address two topics, um, Baptists and missions. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I do want to be narrow in our thinking uh, with regard to Baptist history. We have been looking at more than that, you understand, uh, leading up to this, but but there is something to be said about Baptist history since we do come through that stream of history or come from that stream of history. And um, But if we become too narrowly focused and think that all of life is about Baptists or only Baptists will be in heaven, type of mentality, then uh, we really don't understand history very well because um, Baptists really didn't come into the picture until the uh, late 1600s. So we would disassociate ourselves with uh, hundreds of years of church history. And so I think that would be unwise to, uh, to think in that way. But um, the man that we meet at the beginning of the Gospels is John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian. So we are going to, to focus in on Baptists. That's, uh, that's a joke. Um, so, um, so those are the two uh, things we're going to look at today. First, Baptists, when are they born? We can locate four possible origins of Baptist history. I'll just mention these for you uh, because this is somewhat debated. Um, and I'll tell you where I think Baptists did actually come from. Some say that they came from the 
um, from the Anabaptists. Perhaps you've heard of them, the Anabaptists. Um, they believe that uh, they believe uh, that that uh, they believe in pacifism, uh, not holding any government office. They question original sin. There, there are some problems in their thinking. Um, they believe that you can reach moral perfection, and they their their idea. We've talked about them a little bit before. They they try to pull themselves completely away from the corruption of the world. They recognize that as a problem, and we should as well. But in order to do that, they end up like see these ancestors. Uh, actually, you don't see them. Let me show you. The ancestors of the Anabaptists are the Mennonites or the Amish. That's the type of thinking. Uh, that comes from this group called the Anabaptists. And um, so, so they try to remove themselves completely from society and reach a level of perfection, some, some level of perfection. And um, so I would suggest to you that Baptists did not come from the Anabaptists. Uh, second uh, group that people say that Baptists came from are called the General Baptists. And this is a legitimate group. They started in the early 1600s in England. They were led by um, a charismatic but somewhat imbalanced man named John Smith. He left the Netherlands in 1607 because of persecution and uh, arrived in England. And uh, he wanted to make a pure church, a pure church. And um, so he wanted only Christians to be a part of his church. I think that's a, a good motive. But he actually moved... Um, a little bit too far because later uh, later on in 1609, after he had formed the first Baptist church, uh, he ended up baptizing all 40 of his followers. All a good thing. Um, but within several months, he reversed course and renounced all of these baptisms and called um, on his followers to reject all of their baptisms. And then they tried to seek for a, a true church. So he started up this church, First Baptist Church in England, General Baptist, and he had all these followers with him. And then a few months later, he says, actually, no, these baptisms are invalid. Let's go find something else. Let's see if we can find the true church. Well, he failed in, in trying to find the true, pure church, and he died just a couple of years later, not belonging to any church at all. Well, some of his followers uh, had ignored his last call to leave um, their Baptist church, and instead followed one of his disciples, a man by the name of Thomas Hellweiss, back uh, to England. And in 1611, um, uh, they, they formed this church on English soil. It became known as the General Baptist. And the reason that they call themselves General is because... Uh, see, do I have another? Yeah. Because they believe that, that the atonement of Jesus Christ generally applied to all people and that you could accept or reject salvation at any time. Now, not in the sense that when the gospel is offered to you, you can accept or reject it, but rather you can accept the gospel, believe it as true, be a Christian, and then put it away. You can lose your salvation, in other words. And this is what the followers here of Tom Hellweiss and the General Baptists believe. And this theological error led to many others so that um, even as General Baptists grew in number in the 17th century, their doctrinal standards soon disappear and they fell into disarray and heresy. 
And um, some of them became Unitarians, but others just simply gave up. And, um, and the General Baptists have essentially died out, unless you want to say that they're still living through the Unitarians. The third group, that, or, or the third uh, origin that people suggest that Baptists came from are called, uh, is from the uh, particular Baptists. <clears throat> they came around about 30 years after the General Baptist, and uh, they were very much independent of them. In fact, they had many differences from the General Baptist. The idea of particular is that um, they believed that the atonement of Jesus Christ only was effective or only necessary or, or um, only done for the elect, the people who were truly going to be saved. So Christ's death was only for particular people. Think of it that way. So you've got the General Baptists who think it's for everybody, and you have the, the particular who think it's only for those whom God will save. And so um, they had a, a very uh, bizarre way of reaching people. The pastors at that time would would determine who they felt were elect or were going to be uh, the, going to be uh, seen as elect. Okay, when I say elect, people who are chosen from before the foundation of the world by God to be saved. So the the pastor would have some sort of special spiritual glasses that would determine whether or not they should give the gospel to that person or not. Because otherwise, uh, you, you can't actually give the gospel to a non-elect person because they're, it's not going to do anything. So they don't even bother with those people. They only bother with the people who they think God has elected. And that makes for very difficult witnessing. Um, uh, so these are the particular Baptists. So that was 1638 when they were founded in, in uh, England. Now, in 1639, you have the origin of Baptists in America, 1639. This is started by a man named Roger Williams. Now, this didn't happen in England. This, this started 4,000 miles away, and, um, and this started in Providence, Rhode Island, 1639. Uh, so we're going to come back and talk about Baptists in America here. But first, I want to go back to talk about particular Baptists. But what I wanted to point out there was that there's basically four potential places where uh, Baptists come from. Okay, It's either the, uh, the uh, Anabaptists or the, uh, the General Baptists, the particular Baptists, or the Baptists in America. And I'll talk about which one I think it is here in just a second. Okay? Um, in particular, Baptists, um, in, in 1644, there were seven Baptist churches that met together. This is back in England again. And they strongly were concerned about a Calvinistic statement of faith. Now, what that means is they believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over all things. And they believe strongly in the depravity of man, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are depraved. That you, you hear that word from the word depravity. They believe strongly in that sort of idea. <clears throat> and uh, so these, these uh, types of churches, particular Baptist churches, were growing in England. Um, and in, uh, 30, 30, 33 years later, in 1677, another group met to form a... Um, to, to, to come together about a... Um, a uh, confession that they wanted to make together. You, what you're going to find about a lot of these 
early Baptist churches, they're very confessional in the sense that they recognize that it's not enough to just say, okay, we believe the Bible. Well, you can talk to lots of people, lots of different denominations that say we believe the Bible, but what does that, what does that mean? Okay, how do we summarize what the Bible says? And this is what confessions often do. Um, they take the truths of Scripture and try to boil them down to, to summarized type points. So, so we have confessional and they're reformed in the sense that they come from the Reformation. Okay, remember the, the 1600s there with, or 1500s there with uh, Martin Luther? <clears throat> they are reformed in the sense that they're, they're trying to move away from the Catholic Church and reformed in the sense that they believe in justification by faith. They believe that, that salvation comes by faith alone, so that's a good thing. Um, so what we have is a particular Baptist confession of faith that they adopted early on. Here's a prologue to the statement that uh, followed closely the language of the Westminster Confession. It says, To convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound word uh, which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. So this is, a, a I think, a good balance uh, you actually weren't able to read that. Sorry about that. Um, this is a good balance, I think, um, trying to be unified with other believers wherever possible, but also recognizing there needs to be a separation from uh, from people who reject these things. And um, so, in 1677, there was a great amount of persecution happening among the. Uh, among these churches, and so the confession actually wasn't signed until 1689. And 1689, uh, it was republished with 100 representatives signing it, and today it's known as the Second London Confession, or simply the 1689 Confession. These particular Baptists are really um, very much descendants of the Reformation, and there are many great figures that come from these particular Baptists. First of all, John Bunyan. John Bunyan was born in 1628, and um, he found uh, his understanding about the gospel through through understanding Christ and what Christ did for him. He was saved and baptized in 1653. Um, actually, he was saved in 1628. He was baptized in 1653. But he was later imprisoned about seven years after his baptism for preaching without permission from the magistrate, and he spent the next 12 years behind bars. And um, while imprisoned, he wrote one of his many great, great writings. In fact, the greatest that we still have is the second best book-selling book of all time. Do you know what it is? Pilgrim's Progress, right. And uh, it's right behind the first best-selling book of all time, which is Bill Clinton's My Life autobiography. No, just kidding. It's actually uh, the Bible is the first best-selling book of all time. Um, the other great person that came out of the particular Baptist, there's several people, but Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller uh, was one of the best theologians in his day from, the, uh, from these particular Baptists particularly. And um, what was happening during this time is that people were going too far when it came to their understanding of, of God's sovereignty. And when I, what, I, what I mean by that is that they were, because God is sovereign over all, then we can just sit back and, and do nothing or 
because God is sovereign over all, and He's already chosen all these people whom He will save, then we don't have to do anything. And, and what Fuller did was he came back and came with a more balanced approach to God's sovereignty and our responsibility and uh, recognized that, that, that um, like Romans 10.17 says, that how can they call on Him without faith? Uh, I'm sorry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the Word of God. How can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? So we have a responsibility there. He, he, uh, he had a more balanced approach there and, and helped to spark a great revival in England during the late last years of the 18th century. And then perhaps most familiar uh, for you out of, that came out of the particular Baptist, certainly John Bunyan is a recognizable name, but Charles Spurgeon, pastor of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle, stands as the greatest preacher of his day, perhaps of any day. So these these are uh, some of the great things that came out of the particular Baptist. They I think they have a great legacy. However, I believe that the Baptists in America or the Baptist um, denomination that we are a part of came not from the particular Baptist or the General Baptist or the Anabaptist, but rather they came out of the English Separatist movement. Okay, the English Separatists are part of the Puritans. Okay, so we talked about them, we, um, uh, Jonathan Edwards and, uh, and uh, people in that day. So out of the Puritans, they, they're starting to die out now towards the end of the 1600s or towards the beginning of the 1600s, and now comes along a new uh, refound faith. Okay, so what you need to think about when it comes to the, uh, the Baptists is not that it was something that, we have all the way from the beginning of time. Okay, so it didn't start with John the Baptist. That that was a joke. Okay, it didn't start with John the Baptist, and then now we have Baptist religion all the way throughout. Uh, and it wasn't an invention of a new religion either. It wasn't a okay. Now let's determine what would be the best way to reach people type thing, and we'll just design it ourselves. Rather, it was a rediscovery of the truths that are in the scriptures. And uh, we don't have time to go through all of the the distinct the distinctives of the Baptist faith, but one of them is biblical authority. They they got back to the idea that the Bible is the authority, and that's one of the things that I am uh, most proud to to uh, to think about when I think about our Baptist heritage. So Roger Williams. Um, Roger Williams was a man who uh, was the man who started the first Baptist church in America, and he was uh, came out of the the Puritans. He wasn't able to start a, a church in the um, in the northern uh, up in Massachusetts. He ended up having to go down to Providence, Rhode Island. In fact, the name the city Providence was named uh, because he wanted to name it that. That was a, a newly discovered area. March 1639, Providence. Rhode Island is where the first Baptist church was started. Um, those who knew him, one of the Puritan scholars described him as a charming, sweet-tempered, winning man, courageous, selfless, God-intoxicated, and stubborn. The very soul of separation, they say. He would separate not only from erroneous churches, but also from everyone who would not denounce erroneous churches as confidently as he did and he could follow a belief to its conclusion with a passionate 
literalness that bordered on the ridiculous. What you'll find about this man, Roger Williams, was that he had uh, he did start the first church, but he very quickly went off a little bit too far in, in um, some excessive errors in his, his understanding of theology. He was a Cambridge graduate. He was ordained as an Anglican minister, and he became fed up with the errors of Anglicanism and sought refuge in New England. Arrived in Boston in 1631 and uh, soon began attracting many followers. And he had some unusual views compared to what most people were going, coming over to the New World to believe. And um, uh, But he, he did pioneer uh, this new church as well as uh, religious liberty. He sought religious liberty, liberty freedom, freedom of conscience. He believed that that should be a part of, of every person's existence. Um, Williams... Uh, Williams uh, started this church, uh, soon began teaching against the King of England very strongly. He believed that the King of England had no authority to grant the colony its charter in the first place and charged the King with blasphemy, uh, pretty dangerous words to be uh, saying, although he is 4,000 miles away. So um, this upset the Puritan leaders and they denounced Williams again. And so he headed south in the dead of winter and he depended on the care of Indians and was uh, befriended by um, by these this group of people until he arrived in in Rhode Island and founded the city Providence. Well, by this time he embraced believers' baptism. And in March of 1639, a man by the name of Ezekiel Holliman baptized Williams, and Williams in turn baptized Holliman and also ten others. And this is how the first Baptist church in America was formed. Um, well, those convictions about the Baptist faith didn't last very long, similar to John Smith. He, uh, he renounced his church after a short period of time, I think it was four or five months, and, and, uh, and he renounced all other churches as being false and said that only God could raise up the true church and would, would possibly restore that and show that to them. Well, at this point, Williams refused to take the Lord's Supper anywhere because he didn't think there was any true church around. And finally, he reversed his course completely, deciding that it would be too hard to distinguish between the church and the world. And so he decided that he would just um, he would not pray or preach with anyone at all. From that point to his death, Williams was not a member of any church at all. And uh, Williams was... Seen as as I quoted earlier, as a person who who was very schismatic, he was he was at the center of of trying to separate from from everyone, and, and he definitely saw a distinction between uh, or a separation of the church and the state, uh, but he 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 never could find the the true church that he was looking for. Perhaps in your uh, pathway or your journey through the Christian life, you've seen people like this that are looking for this perfect, this perfect group of people or this perfect set of doctrines, and uh, and what they find, and you find them bouncing around all different places, and they never end up finding uh, what they're looking for, do they? Because uh, there is no perfect church. I hope you understand that. We, uh, we are all sinners 
and we can't know the Scriptures perfectly. We, we certainly do our best. We don't give up and, and just uh, throw it all in the wind. But, but, uh, but this type of mentality is, is very dangerous in, in the local church. We need to figure out what, what, what it is the Scriptures want us to do, find a church that's as close as we can to those, at least on the, the main things, make sure that we're on the same page on the main things, agree to those things, commit to that body, and, and be a part of it. Um, well, despite this unpromising beginning, Baptists in America soon be, took a more stable route, and um, particular Baptists started to emigrate, and they continued to add to their ranks. And some other American Puritans, through their own study of the Scriptures, came to more Baptistic, Baptistic convictions, including this man here, Henry Dunster, who was the president of Harvard College. And he was a man that so much believed in the Baptist faith that he had to resign from the presidency because he rejected infant baptism. And Harvard uh, at that time was accepting it. Well, Baptists remained a minority in the New World until the Great Awakening revivals of the mid-1700s. And uh, Baptists made uh, spectacular gains in these years during the revivals, especially in North Carolina, Virginia, and Kentucky as they were gaining more and more converts, including not just people who are coming out of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, but also converts from uh, congregational churches. So people who were more congregational in their understanding started to see that the Baptist understanding was actually was actually more correct and, and were converted in that way. And so as they grew in number, they saw the need to maintain their unity and theological orthodoxy through a confession of faith. Again, back to confessional idea. A lot of these early Baptist churches were. And in 1742, the Baptist Association of Philadelphia adopted the 1689 London Confession uh, with only slight revisions. And this was printed by a man named uh, Benjamin Franklin. Who And, um, and this, this confession was soon embraced by the majority of Baptists throughout the, col- throughout the colonies. And uh, so many of the churches, in fact, I would say the, the Baptist uh, faith from its earliest beginnings was both Reformed and confessional. Well, with this growth, obviously you can expect that there's going to be persecution as well. And so in states like Massachusetts and Virginia, which they enshrined the congregational idea and the Anglican churches as their state churches. And so Baptists, of course, were harassed and often imprisoned and sometimes even whipped for refusing to be a part of these congregational or Anglican churches. Uh, One especially uh, notable case came in Massachusetts. Elizabeth Backus was a devout Baptist and a poor elderly woman, and she fell behind in her tax payments and uh, she was arrested. They found her in her home, sitting by the fire, reading her Bible. She couldn't even afford. Uh, very, she couldn't afford very much. She fell quite uh, ill. She was wrapped in quilts, and these heartless police hauled her off to jail because she uh, could not pay her taxes. Well, Mrs. Backus described her ordeal in a moving letter to her son Isaac. She said, we lay in prison 13 days. 
Though I was bound when I was cast into the furnace, yet was I loosed and found Jesus in the midst of the furnace with me. Oh, then could I give up my name, estate, family, life, and breath freely to God. Now the prison looked like a palace to me. I could bless God for all the laughs and scoffs made at me. I should read it this way. Now the prison looked like a palace to me. She wrote this to her son. A little bit of an allegory there that she uses that she saw Jesus in the flame. She was in the furnace. She wasn't literally, you understand. But but she was saying that once she recognized that, she could release all these problems of the circumstances around her. Well, it turns out that she uh, actually was the wrong woman to to be arrested. They, the uh, Massachusetts authority had come down on the wrong person. And um, so this negative publicity came across the news wires and people started to find out about it. She was the mother of Isaac Backus. Isaac was a Baptist minister who became one of the most influential figures in American history, uh, at least with regard to religious liberty. He was an educated philosopher and historian and he learned under the school of thought of uh, Jonathan Edwards and also under John Locke's Enlightenment philosophy. Well, at the time of his mother's imprisonment, Bacchus had just become a Baptist pastor and over the next 50 years, he served as an uh, articulate and tireless spokesman um, for religious freedom. And so that's why I say he had a lot to do with, with where we stand today because he stood up for some of these, some of these things. His counterpart... Um, in Virginia was John Leland. He was also a Baptist minister and he was an advocate of religious freedom. He was not formally educated like Bacchus was, but he taught himself well in theology and philosophy through his own reading and um, believed that there should be a separation of church and state. Uh, During the debates over the Constitution and Bill of Rights, John Leland either corresponded with or met with President George Washington and James Madison, and seems to have been quite influential in the developing of the First Amendment, which guarantees religious freedom. Well, in the midst of uh, this fight for religious freedom, Baptists continued to grow at an amazing rate, particularly during the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s that we talked about last week. And their, their emphasis was on personal conversion, and that the gospel was simple. We don't have to manipulate people into accepting it. That we need to just present the gospel as it is. The power comes in the gospel, not in the packaging of the gospel. Um, the power comes from God through the gospel. And um, so uh, most of the Baptists continued to hold the Reformed confessional standards, and this was seen in the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Again, back to confessional understanding that that we need to make uh, claims based on what the Scriptures say. We need to write those down and make sure that we're on the same page there. Besides trying to maintain doctrinal purity and unity within the churches, the early 19th century Baptists also joined in an effort to expand and spread missions around the world. And so in 1814, there was the formation of the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States for Missions. So they shortened that, thankfully, to the Triennial Convention because they met every three years. And during the first 20 years of this, this, um, this uh, formation, 
there were a hundred missionaries that were sent out, and so you started to see world missions start to increase. Though most Baptists in the late 18th century had vocally opposed slavery, by the early 1800s, many Baptists in the South came to defend it. And because of this, the Northern Baptists decided to separate themselves from the Southern Baptists. And that's why we have what's called the Southern Baptist Convention today. Because uh, and, and they don't, obviously they still don't, they still don't accept that. Southern Baptists are, I believe, a very good overall um, convention. Uh, but but the Northern Baptists saw that, that they were starting to defend slavery, and that's not a good thing, so we need to separate ourselves from that, and that's why you have this splinter. Um, and so they're, they're not proud of that. The Southern Baptists would admit that, but at the same time, they are, even though their roots may not be the best, the Southern Baptists, they still recognize they're very good things to be, to be said about, their, about their, um, their group of churches. All right. Any uh, any questions about the uh, the origin of Baptists? So what I'm suggesting is that the Baptists actually came from the English Separatists or the Puritans, not from the Anabaptists or the General Baptists or the particular Baptists. Any questions or comments? Bill. Yeah, they're definitely uh, over the last century that that's shifted, and the way you can see that is is uh, their grip on the universities. Um, what happened was the liberals started to take over the Southern Baptist Convention, and you were seeing that throughout all a lot of the churches. Uh, although there was still a remnant of conservatives within the Southern Baptist movement, but what's happened over the last uh, thirty to forty years is that that the the conservatives are trying to reclaim the Southern Baptist Convention. And so you see that in Southern Seminary where you have Al Mohler, Mark Dever, um, people like that, people who are uh, very much Baptistic, very similar to what we would believe. Now, I say I don't necessarily agree with everything that Southern Baptist Convention does. I could get into some of those right now, but but uh, I think that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we're doing here. But yeah, there there is still... I would say there's now more a remnant of liberal Southern Baptists. You can actually find still some liberal Southern Baptist seminaries, but the most prominent Southern Baptist seminary is Southern Seminary in Louisville, and they've actually gone back um, to conservative. They felt like instead of splintering off of the Southern Baptist Convention, we can reform it or change it, bring it back to where it should have, where where it used to be, where it came from, type of idea. So. Right. 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 Yeah, and I've been to some Southern Baptist churches down there as well, and and they're they're very, you know, very solid uh, for the most part. So. All right. Yes, Tricia. Um. You know what? We did. When I was in seminary, we talked about the Primitive Baptist. But I'm not familiar with. 
I can't remember what what were their distinctives or do you do you know of any or just heard of them? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd have to check on that for you. Um, I do have this monster volume on uh, Baptist heritage. Let me uh, make myself a note here. I'll try to bring an answer for you next week. All right. Bill. That sounds like uh, that's very closely tied to what they're how they started as General Baptists in England. That it, uh, they uh, <clears throat> remember they were the ones that believed that you could lose your salvation too. So you're not too far away from a works-based salvation when you believe you can lose your salvation. So yeah, uh, what's the name of the city? Metamora. Mm-hmm. And the first Sunday, the pastor uh, taught Sunday school, and so I went back the next week, and uh, his wife taught Sunday school. And I said, well, that's okay, like that. But uh, she right away started teaching the work of salvation. Oh. Yeah, I um, I would think, and that may, may be an unfair character, characterization uh, of all General Baptist churches, but I would think that that's not too far from their from their origin. Yeah. Well, let's talk about missions quickly. We don't have much time, so um, we talked about the ex- expansion of of Christianity in the in the um, the New World through the Second Great Awakening. But now we're starting to see an expansion of international missions. And uh, this doesn't mean that there there was no missionary work going on before this time. It's not what I'm suggesting. Certainly, you had uh, John Elliott, David Brainerd, and others. Even Jonathan Edwards, after he was relieved of his duties at his church, remember, he went on to the Native Americans there in in, uh, New England. But... um, on October 5, 1783, the English pastor John Ryland noted in his diary that he had baptized today a poor journeyman shoe cobbler. Little did he realize that this man would become the father of the modern missions movement. His name was William Carey. And uh, he had a great burden for people to hear the gospel around the world, particularly uh, in India, where he ended up going. They started the Baptist Missionary Society to help send him on his way. He and his family sailed to India, and they would never return. During the first few years of his time in India, it was a very painful time, very difficult. There were lots of problems with heat, poverty, disease, culture shock, and his wife was a very apprehensive lady, and she didn't really want to go to India in the first place. She fell into a severe depression, and ended up 
uh, spending the last 13 years of her life in a room with padded walls. Uh, so Carrie had a very difficult time there in India, but, but nonetheless, he did continue on. He worked hard to translate the Bible in all these different dialects. And, and so there, India is very much uh, thankful for his, his early ministry there. Following uh, his lead, they started a, a, uh, a mission board called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And uh, two of the early missionaries that were sent out under this missionary board were Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. Luther Rice would later start George Washington University. Judson and Rice sailed across the ocean and came to a Baptist understanding of baptism, baptism by immersion. And so instead of uh, being a part of this congregational mission board that they had been sent from, which believed in infant baptism, Rice returned home to America to try to drum up support among Baptist churches while Judson stayed out there in Burma and and uh, worked hard to plant churches. And... Uh, he he and he also had to endure severe hardship. Three three wives died successive. Okay, not not all at the same time, but he had one wife, she died, then he got married again, she died, and, and then had a third wife and she died. And so while these early pioneer missionaries were few in number, they led to great reports back home. People were starting to get more and more excited about missions and spreading it. And one measure of their success is how long it lasts, how long the work that they do lasts. And one of the ways that we can can evaluate how they did was to see uh, if their work is still continuing. And in order to see that, I think the best person to, to look at is a man by the name of David Livingston. He, came, he was a Scotch Presbyterian minister, missionary from Africa, or in Africa, from Scotland, he arrived there in 1841 at the age of 28, and he dedicated the next 32 years of his life to, to uh, ministering to Africans. And uh, he has a, a remarkable legacy. In fact, when he died, his African friends carried his body 1,500 miles from the spot where he died to the coast so that he could be taken back to England and buried in Westminster Abbey. And they sent all of his body uh, to be buried there except for his heart. They kept that in Africa and buried that nearby in a nearby mulva tree. Well, almost 100 years after Livingston died, an incredible event happened in, in Malawi. One of the uh, lands where Livingston had, had spent and labored and worked hard to, to spread the gospel. And this, I think, testifies to, their, to his legacy and many of the... the um, the power of missions and its continuance. In 1959, when the, the fight for independence had turned violent between the Africans and the British, uh, a British plane came by and dropped a, an empty tear gas canister that contained a message. And they, they, they dropped it to these residents where Livingston had been a uh, hundred years earlier, and they wanted to make sure that they were safe. And so they said, we're going, to, we're going to fly our plane by you again, and if we come by next time, and you have stones in the shape of an eye, then that means that, that um, you feel safe. But if you feel threatened by the Africans around you, then put the stones in the shape of a B, V and we'll arrange for evacuation. This is what the message inside the, the uh, canister said. 
Well, the next day the plane returned and the people, the British uh, people, the white residents there of Africa had arranged the stones to read Ephesians 2.14. And that reads, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. An amazing statement when you consider what kind of animosity was there between Africans and British and uh, the fact that the gospel had changed people, that changed Africans to, um, to, to allow for peace there is incredible. In fact, I was uh, just thinking back to, um, to a missionary that's in Tanzania. Well, he's no longer there, but he's, he had been there for 10 years. His name is Rob Howell. In fact, uh, Matt Gass is going to, to take over part of that ministry where Rob had started. When Rob first started looking in Africa for places to start churches and to, to start a church planning movement, he went to some of these areas of Africa and was expecting to find no gospel witness at all because there were no missionaries there. But what he found was that there were pockets of churches that were still around from the time of David Livingston. And so what he, what he recognized from that is that this is not the place that I need to plant churches. The gospel is going forth here. Perhaps there, there's some need of training, some other things. But, but what he recognized is he wanted to go to a place where people had not been, where there had not been a gospel witness, and so that's why he ended up in, in Tanzania, East Africa. So, the Baptists and missions. Uh, we see the, the beginnings of them in the 1600s and the missions movement starting more toward in the 1700s. But that hopefully gives you a better picture as to how these things have, have taken flight. Any questions or comments? All right. Appreciate your attention. We'll uh, finish up with this series on church history by looking at a more recent church history that leads up to the history of our church. And, uh, and uh, look forward to seeing what, what more we can learn through that. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for many uh, men and women who stood over the years for the truth of the Scriptures, who worked hard to, to understand what Your Word means and, and weren't content to settle with what people had said formerly, but wanted to make sure that, that this was Your Word. And uh, we understand that there's nothing new under the sun, so we, we're, um, we're, we're not saying that the Baptists are special in that way, but we are thankful for our heritage as Baptists because of the, the, uh, the strong commitment to the Bible as the authority and justification by faith alone and, and baptism by immersion. Uh, the Lord's Supper uh, saved church membership and, and uh, only, mem- only members that have been saved and baptized can join. There are lots of great things that we can, we can distinguish ourselves from other denominations and while we recognize that we are not the remnant here on the earth, you have many people who have been saved and who are, are in solid churches that are not, do not have Baptists in their name. We are thankful for our heritage and we stand by it and we want to uphold it and, and leave it for people behind us as well. Help us to um, be most concerned with your, your Word and, and what it says and uh, we will give you the praise for how you change our hearts through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.